Thank you for downloading March 3rd's Sunday Morning Sermon, our final question in the Engage series, Is Jesus Really the Only Way? For more information about Paragon Church, visit paragonchurch.com. What I would like to do even this morning is I would like to really take these words that we talked about and I would like to take a look at, at the fact that this is probably one of my favorite things I get to do as a pastor. I love seeing life change. I love seeing salvations. I love seeing baptisms. I love being a part of weddings. And I love being a part of a a baby-child dedication where a parent says, I want to lift my child up to the Lord. I want to see him or her raised in the Lord, saying, I want to do this. And even more so, I love seeing the church saying, we will be right there beside you. We do support you in this. We are going to love on you. We are going to love on your kids. We are going to serve you in a way to help you in this. We want to to really take this next step for them to understand who Jesus is, to experience his love, to experience his salvation, to see him grow in them and them grow in him. And then we get to be a part of a discipleship process of bringing them together. How great is that? See, a lot of people say, I don't know if church is worth it. I don't know if church really matters. This is why church is worth it. This is why church matters, because a faith family comes together to help us through good times, to help us through bad times. And see, as we walk in this, we know that kids need all the help they can get. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but this culture is changing super fast. These kids are right stuck in the middle of it all. Everything that's changing, their little minds can't quite decipher all the stuff. But let me tell you that this generation, the ones that we just prayed over and the ones all the way up to age 23, this generation is the fastest changing generation ever. Let me show you a case in point. There was a guy this week that was at the Baptist Convention. He showed us this picture of the Pope's inauguration in 2005. Now, you can see this, and he was talking about how, how this generation saw the experience that took place here. All the things that you see in this picture, you see lots of people there, you see lots of things. Can you point out the one thing that looks a little different in 2005 than it does today? It's down. Well, go back to the picture just real quick. Go back. Down that bottom corner, you see that one little thing there? It's a flip phone. It's a flip phone. 2005. Move ahead eight years later. And you have that. Eight years. The transition, the speed, all of the things that happen. These tablets, these iPhones, these Galaxy S10s, whatever one you have, they have changed our culture. They have shaped our culture. You have information at your fingertips. You can stream movies. My kids will never get the fun experience of hanging out at Blockbuster or at Hastings, waiting by the counter, hoping somebody turns in that movie you actually went for. All they have to do is download it. It's all right there at their fingertips. Nobody really goes to the library anymore except to actually use the Internet. I mean, there's not a whole lot. Most kids don't even know there's a Dewey Decimal System. You know, that is the reality that we live in. Everything is moving so very quickly. And the thing is, is that at the fingertips, they also have information. And that information sometimes is true, and that information sometimes is fake. And they can't decipher it. 
So as adults, we come alongside them and we help them in this and we bring them along so they can see what is going on. They can see all the things that, that are going on in their lives. But, but here is what we have to understand. We have to understand who God is in their lives and bring them along in that because some of you probably fall in what's called the elder generation or the greatest generation, the World War II generation, those born before 1945. Or maybe you fall in the baby boomer generation, those born between 46 and 65. Do you realize that between anybody basically born before 1965, about 55 to 65% of them know and profess Jesus as their Savior? But if you end up in today's generation, Generation Z or the Centennials, whatever you want to call them, the, the, the group after the Millennials, only 1 in 10 profess Jesus as their Savior. It went from 65% to 10%. That is a shocking number. That is a shocking number. And there's some other things you see. See, in the latest research, two out of every three kids that attend church growing up will walk away after high school graduation. Two out of every three. 66%. And both Generation Z and the Millennials, only 20% of them believe that church even matters. The faith family even matters so much so they say that it's okay as long as I go to church at least once a month on average, then I'd be considered a regular attender. And, and that's a hard truth to swallow as a pastor, but that, that's the reality of the world that we live in. The question I have this morning is, is what are we going to do about it as a church? What are we going to do about it as a Paragon church? What are we going to do about it as, as the local global church? What are we going to do about it as parents? What are we going to do about it as grandparents? What are we going to do about it as aunts and uncles? What are we going to do about it just as friends? What are we going to do to make sure that we come alongside of these kids that we just dedicated to the Lord? What are we going to do about the kids that all piled into that back room over there? What are we going to do about the kids that don't come to church, that maybe show up for a VBS because mom and dad see it as free babysitting? What are we going to do to see these kids grow up in the Lord? And forget just the kids. What are we going to do about the generations that are? I mean, even when we look at these baby boomers and these generation, uh, of the greatest generation, even though it's 65 and 55 percent, what else is it? If you flip the coin over, while 65 and 55 percent profess Jesus Christ, that also means that 45 and 35 don't. So there's still people to be reached in those generations too. What are we going to do about it as we get involved in the lives of others? How are we going to invest in the lives of others? I had a discussion with a guy this week, and as we talked, he was talking about what it means to invest. He said, we invest in things that we love. We invest that we find things that have worth, things that are worthy. And he said this to me, he said, are you a car guy? I said, I was. I, I built a car when I was in high school and kind of redid it. He goes, how much did you invest in that car? And I invested time, and I invested way too much money, and I invested uh, effort, and I invested all of my knowledge I could. I have another buddy who rides bicycles. His bicycle's worth more than my car. Who would invest that much money in a bicycle? Well, somebody who cares about it, that's it. We're going to invest in the things that we care about. Uh, if you're a music person, I am not. 
But if you're a music person, you're going to invest in your equipment or you're going to invest in new songs. You're going to invest in those kind of things. And you're going to find it okay because that is where you find worth. Are you a sports person? I like sports. I like sports a lot. As a matter of fact, I've talked to you guys lots about sports. But as you invest in sports, man, your equipment, if you're playing it, or if you're a fan, a couple weeks ago, I wore my Packers jersey with my, my eight on it, telling you, you know what, I got this custom made for myself because this is the only guy I know that isn't going to leave this team. And, and I got that, well, it's baseball season, so I got myself a baseball jersey too. And uh, the thing is, is I got one last year for Father's Day. I got one last year for Father's Day that was a Diamondbacks jersey, but it had the number eight on it, just like the, my, my Packers jersey had and I had to change the number this time around to a nine. Because uh, come about November, this little girl is going to be joining us in the church. We're going to have an opportunity to be able to, to reach out and, and dedicate her to the Lord as well. Her name is Glory, and she lives in Bulgaria right now. She is in an orphanage in Bulgaria. And we uh, felt God calling us to, to grow and, and make our six a magnificent seven. So she even has her own little jersey too already. So, so she's ready for when she gets home, now, and uh, very excited about it, and I appreciate that. And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm excited to see what God is doing and, and where we want to invest, because you know what? Some people are like, you may have clapped, but inside your head, you're like, they're crazy. They're crazy. <laughs> if you don't know us already, we have three children with Down syndrome already that we've adopted other countries. She has Down syndrome as well. As a matter of fact, right now, she is 17 months old. Uh, Samuel, who's uh, right over here, I know, what's he weighing in at now? I mean, he's kind of a hoss, but yeah, he's 11 or 12 pounds. She's weighing in at 10 at 17 months old. The, the Bulgarian uh, orphanages are, are not uh, a great place to be, so we are praying that God moves this process as quickly as he can to get him out, because Christy has been, has been uh, actually in contact with some other people who have um, just gotten back from Bulgaria, and of course, they're like, oh, that is the worst possible orphanage, which makes us feel real good that for nine months we have to sit back and wait to see what God's going to do. But we know he's got a plan, and we know he's going to do what he's got to do. But we're excited, and that's where we're investing our time. And that's where we're going to invest our effort, and that's where we're going to do these things. And where you find worth, you're going to invest. And I would challenge you today that as we continue to move forward, we are going to be investing in the lives of children. That room back there, uh, we have some great teachers. We need more great teachers. And I would challenge you that if you feel God calling you to do it, to talk to Christy Cuddy because she wants to talk to you about how we can continue to grow and how we continue to bring kids closer to Jesus and how we can reach out to the special news community even here in the Albuquerque and Rio Rancho area. How can we do that? Well, we're going to need you to come alongside of it. It's where we need to make sure that we are investing as we Continue to share. I guess the question is, I said, are you a car person? Maybe you'll invest in cars. A music person, a sports person? I think we all need to be gospel people. We all need to be gospel people. We all need to be people who are willing to invest in God and His work and all the things that He's doing here. And that's sharing with your neighbors, that's sharing with your family, that's sharing with people inside the church, that's sharing with people outside the church. That is what we all should be. And that's going to be my challenge to you today because, you know, it's really crazy to think there's a world out there that just scoffs at the idea of Jesus. 
you know, we've been going through these questions. And as we've been going through these questions, one of the things that, uh, that we've said is as we continue to engage with people, there's going to be questions that come up about Christianity. And our first question was, was one that, that, that actually hurt me. And it was this, is God really real? Or is he just some figment of our imagination? Did, did we just make him up? And, and as we began to look at that, I have to say my answer is absolutely God is real. And, and there are moments of doubt, yes. But I truly believe that my moments of doubt when it comes to God comes from this. It comes from my thinking of who I think God is. If you were here last week, I said, you know, we, we have this customization box that we like to put God in. And I have a feeling that sometimes we get caught up in, in making God who we want him to be rather than believing God of who he actually is. And, and when we look at God, we say, is he really real? I think we have to ask ourselves really the question, do we really know him? Do we really know him? Do we really trust him? And when it comes to the trust part, that's what led to our second question as we looked at it. Why would a good, loving God allow suffering? Why would he allow good people to suffer? What, what would be the, the point in allowing people to suffer? And I think if we know God, We'll know his motives and we'll know why he's doing what he's doing. Maybe not in the midst of it all, but we can look back and say, look at what God did and how he is shaping us and how he's continuing to work on us. Do we trust him in that? See, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, maybe you've seen this verse before, heard the song. Lots of people sing the song about it. Uh, back in the 90s, there was a band called Sixpence, None the Richer. And they sang about it. It said, trust in the Lord with all your heart. What does that mean? What does it mean to trust in the Lord with all your heart? I think it's pretty simple. It means to trust in the Lord with all your heart. And there's not a whole lot of Greek twisting that we have to make it happen. It just says we need to trust him with our everything. And then it says, and do not rely on your own understanding. Don't rely on your customized box. Rely on who God actually is and trust him that he is. And in all of your ways, I ask this question often, what's all me? All. And we have all of your ways Know him. Do we know him? And he's going to make our path straight. And so we begin to say, is God real? Yes, he is, absolutely. Do we know him? Yes, he is. And the better we know him, the more we have a relationship with him, the more we, we continue to grow in him. I mean, think about it this way. Our relationship with him is best described as a marriage relationship. It's actually described that way in the Bible. If you're married in here and you only spoke to your spouse once a month for one hour, how would your relationship be? Probably not great. Well, that's the idea of saying, well, as long as I go to church once a month, I'm okay with that. As long as I do this. That, that's why I say, hey, when you're at home, raise your kids up. Pray with them. Read with them. Bring them along. Help them grow. And do the same for yourself as you're in that relationship. And then we begin to trust him because we begin to know him. And that trust begins to see the question we talked about last week. Is there really a hell? Is there really a hell? And I believe if we really know God and we really understand his adversary who's trying to keep us from him, of course we're going to believe there's a hell. And here's the crazy thing about it. See, we don't like to talk about it because Satan, he's known in the Bible as the great deceiver. He's known in the Bible as the great deceiver. He wants to deceive you. He wants you to say these words similar to this. As long as you live for yourself, we're all going to heaven anyway, right? Well, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I can have the best of both worlds kind of mentality. I can have my cake and I can eat it too. 
You aren't really offending God by completely disrespecting Him. You aren't really offending God by, by disobeying Him and rebelling against Him, are you? I mean, you wouldn't care if your kids did that to you, would you? Obviously, we're going to say no to that, but that's the deception that we have. And He's constantly saying, you know what? He's a God of love. He's going to forgive you anyway. And there's truth in those words, but sometimes Satan, as you see, even when he talks to Jesus in the, in the desert when he's doing the temptation, he takes God's words and he twists them. And he uses them against us because we start to begin to think of God of less than who he actually is. And really, all those questions lead up to the question that we had today, probably one of the most important questions we will ever answer and ever be asked and have to answer, and that is this. Is Jesus really the only way? Is Jesus really the only way to heaven? Is Christianity the only one true religion? And what a difficult question that is to answer in a society today that does not want to be offended. So what I'm going to throw out here is a very simple answer up front, and then we'll break it down. So if you get offended up front, it's not my words, it's the Bible, because the Bible says yes. Yes, that's what the Bible says. It's a simple answer. Let me tell you where it says it at first. Jesus says it in John chapter 14, verse 6. What better words to take from than Jesus? It says, Jesus told him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Second one, John says it about Jesus. If you were here this morning and doing John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 with us, John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus says, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Luke records it in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's referring back to Psalm 118, talking to all these religious people that knew that kind of stuff. Verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. John says it again later when he's writing in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Paul, writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all a testimony at the proper time. Go back to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Seven weeks from now is Easter. We'll be talking about this for the next couple of weeks, no matter what church you go to. They're going to talk about Jesus praying. You know what he prayed before he got arrested? You know what he prayed before he got hung on that cross? Three times in Matthew 26, between verses 36 and 46, he prays in verse 39, he prays in verse 42, and he prays in verse 44. He says these words, God, if there's any other way to make this happen, take it from me. Take this cup from me. Take this responsibility from me. I don't really want to do it. However, your will be done. You know what his will was? His will was that Jesus would be the only way. That Jesus would be the only way. God's will is salvation through his son. See, yes is a simple answer, that Jesus is the only way. But then we have this question that pops up. But what about every other one of those devout people that follow those other religions? I mean, they do better at their religion than I do at mine. Why would I be the one going to heaven and them not? That's a real question to ask. That's a real question to really go into it all. I mean, isn't all of this a bit arrogant for us to say that we are the only way? I mean, stop and think about it. If I told you 
This is it, period. You say, well, that's your opinion. How do I know it's not just my opinion? How do I know that I'm not labeling Christianity as exclusive to all other religions? And when I do that, and even when they do it themselves, when other religions label themselves as exclusive, guess what happens? We war against each other. And as we war against each other, that creates a lack of peace. Well, isn't God a God of peace? Isn't God the, supposed to, and we start to have these thoughts and have these questions. And when we're talking to somebody, these are very real realities. And then you look at this idea, well, I don't want to offend anybody. You know that Generation Z and that generation of millennials that we're talking about already? There was a study that just came out this week that 52% of people that fall into those two categories that profess Jesus Christ as their Savior, 52% say they will not share their faith because it's offensive to somebody else. And I look at that and I say, wait a second. Jesus said to. Jesus told us to go. As a matter of fact, he knew the gospel was offensive. If you go to John chapter 6, there's a time when Jesus starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and everybody's like, that's disgusting. What in the world is he talking about? And he turns to them all, and he says, does my teaching offend you? And guess what? They all turned away. Well, not all of them, but most of them turned away and walked away because they said the teaching was too hard. Jesus knew it was going to be offensive, but we get so caught up in in worrying about those things that, that somehow we're going to offend somebody now where they're going to be offended for eternity like we talked about last week. And we begin to to look at this and say, you know, this exclusivity of the Bible, what Jesus said and John said and Paul said and Luke said, if, if we take it as truth, it truly means that everything else isn't truth. Because you can't have truth without a lie. You can't have truth without something being false. And we began to to look at this, and I started to think, if heaven's the real deal, every other religious system, uh, sorry, if if he, not heaven, if Jesus is the real deal, every other religious system on the planet is just wrong. And even more than being just wrong, it's actually deceiving, because it's telling you, this is what you can do to get to heaven, and you follow all those rules, and you do, 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 and you miss the fact that Jesus has already done, and that we don't have to do. But because we've been led astray, we we didn't know. Or we heard, but we didn't want to believe. And it's one of those things when you go, if God only is reconciled to us or us reconciled to God through Jesus, then everything else is left out. Can we believe that? Can you believe that? Is that something you can really wrap your head and heart around? That Jesus is the only way. See, too many of my friends are good, devout people that believe in other stuff. How could God potentially or possibly leave them out of heaven? They're so good at what they do. And then I began to think, maybe they're not as good as we think they are. Maybe we're not as good as we think we are. And the Bible kind of talks about that. But even as we look at it, and a person says, God can't be that exclusive, I think what it has to do is it has to come back to the fact, do we really know God? Do we know who He is? Do we know how He operates? See, we can say Jesus is the exclusive way, but He's also all-inclusive. Because when we look at the version of the Bible that says anything about John 3.16, and I don't know what Bible you pick up, but you can look at John 3.16, and it's going to say something along these lines. For whosoever believeth in him. For God so loved the world. That's right. 
We got some people helping me out over there. Thank you. For God so loved the world. Who's included in the world? All of us, right? You and me and my friends and all the people who are good people. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son as a sacrifice that anyone, that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. That doesn't sound exclusive to me. That sounds incredibly inclusive. But because we don't know God or because we feel that somebody else might be offended by that, we don't want to share that inclusive part of it all. And I I challenge you today that we need to understand that Jesus came for us all. And why? Why? Why did Jesus come for us all? And why is he only the only way? And why can't other religions, even Christianity, because Christianity has a tendency to really lean towards rules instead of the relationship with God. Why can't other religions just do it on their own? Just do it their way. And we talked about it last week. We live in a fallen and broken world. And if you study through the book of Romans, you're going to see a few things. First, you're going to see the revelation of God's existence. Second, you're going to see his glory. And third, you're going to see the condition of man and why man can't do it on their own. So if you have your Bibles with you today, I would love for you to open to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be focusing on verses 21 through 26 today. If you don't have your Bibles, we're going to throw it up here on the screen, so there's no worry there. But I would love for you to follow along as we read through this, and then we kind of break it down. It says, but now, in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed and attested by the law. And it goes on to say, and the law and the prophets. And the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Since there is no distinction, for all have sinned. And who's all? All. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as an atoning sacrifice in His blood, received through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be righteous and declared righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray that God speaks to us this morning. Father, thank you again for your word and the way you continue to guide us and direct us. And I pray for anybody in here who might be struggling with this question of why your son is the only way. I pray that you're opening their hearts and opening your minds to hear what you have to say to them. God, use this time to glorify yourself. We pray it all in your name. Amen. So here's something we need to see. That Romans 3.23 said, All have sinned and fall short of God's standard. All of us, no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, none of us are righteous. As a matter of fact, if you go back up a couple of verses in Romans chapter 3, you'll see in verse 10 where it says this, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. I mean, those are some heavy, heavy words that God is using to describe me and he's using to describe you. That we can't do this on our own. That we can't do this on our own. As a matter of fact, he says, you know, in all of this, we have violated God's commands. We have built our lives around ourselves and not him. Our selfishness, our pride, our self-centeredness causes us to become idols over him. 
And that's something I think we all deal with. I mean, I have six kids, and uh, we have a seven-year-old, a six-year-old, and a six-year-old who are still really grasping the English language. Two from China, one from Ethiopia. But I'll tell you, even the one from China who's probably the, the, the least in the development of the English language, he has figured out one very clear word. And you know what that word is? Mine. No is second, but mine is first. If I try and take something, he hoards it. It's mine. We live in a world that's all about me. And it's not something that we have to be taught. It's something that just comes naturally. It comes naturally with us, and that's why as Paul is writing this in the book of Romans, he says no one is righteous, not one. Because of our sin, we don't measure up on our, other, on our own. Now, if you go a little bit further in the book of Romans, Romans 6.23, Paul expands that. He says these words. He says basically that the wages of sin is death. He said we earned something. Sin has created a debt that we are owed. But the problem is our payment is death. I told you we live in a broken world. Just watch the news for a couple of minutes. Even the weather. Even sports. Just watch for those couple of minutes and you will see that we live in a broken world. And that payment is noticeable in that. Physical death. But that physical death also leads to spiritual death. Spiritual death, and if you go back up to what I read in Romans 3.21, that ability to stand before God as innocent doesn't come on our own. That's why it says the righteousness doesn't come from human effort. Apart from the law, that's where the righteousness comes from. We can't earn it. We can't do it. Even if we're really obedient, even if you do your very, very best to follow the Ten Commandments and every other commandment that are in there, like the 620 other ones that are in there, we have a tendency to go, well, I, follow, I do pretty good with that. Here's the problem with being really good, is we have a tendency to say what? I'm really good. I've done a really good job at that. Well, guess what one of the first sins of all humankind was? I, I, I. We put ourselves above God. So even being really good, we sin in our pride of being really good. And so we have this barrier between us and God. A barrier that we can't break down. And the only solution is Jesus. The only solution is Jesus. See, there's no other religion that will save you. Not even Christianity. It is a relationship with Jesus. Karl Marx. Maybe you've heard that name before. Marxism, socialism, communism, all kind of spurred off of that. Karl Marx actually says this. False religion is the opiate of the people. It soothes, but it does not cure. It soothes, but it does not cure. How many religions make us feel better about ourselves but aren't curing the problem that is sin, that is causing this barrier between us? There's a guy by the name of Al Mohler. Al Mohler is the president of the Southern Seminary. He puts it this way in his book. It says, if all we need is a teacher of enlightenment, then Buddha will do. If all we need is a collection of gods for every occasion and need and hope, Hinduism will do. If all we need is a lawgiver, Moses will do. If all we need is a set of rules and a way of devotion, Muhammad or Joseph Smith will do. If all we need is inspiration and insight into a sovereign self, Oprah will do. But if we need a savior, only Jesus will do. Only Jesus will do. And I can tell you, understanding the human condition, walking into homes where 
devastation has happened, I know that we need a Savior. I know that we need a Savior. And I know that you need a Savior. And I know these kids that were up here need a Savior. And Jesus is the only way for people to be made right with God. He is the only way that we are forgiven of our sins. He is the only way we are saved from eternal judgment. Now, in order to understand this and why it only works in reference to Jesus, I think we have to unpack this passage that we read, what Paul is talking about with the human condition. See, in verse 22 of chapter 3, it says this, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That sentence right there is the goal of the gospel. The gospel, maybe you've heard that word before, but it means good news. That is the good news that Jesus came to grant people the righteousness of God. The righteousness that we already read from Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that nobody has. We have to have it granted to us. And we can't get it through the law. That's what we read in verse 21, because it says apart from the law we get this righteousness. But we can get it through faith and belief in Jesus. See, those two words are very important there. Faith and belief in Jesus. It's totally opposite of every other religion. Who do you trust in for every other religion? You trust in yourself. You trust in what I do, that good scale versus bad scale. How much is on the good? Is it outweighing the bad? And if it does, God's going to let me into heaven. See, we can't do it like that. We can't can't live like that. Because when are you ever going to know? How are you going to know your good outweighed your bad? What kind of life is that to live with a maybe kind of hope instead of a hope kind of hope? Jesus Christ gives us the hope. It's not about what we can do. It's about what He has already done. Then we jump over to verse 24, and it says this, They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we go from faith and belief to this word called justification, this word called grace. Justify or justification is actually a legal term. And in this legal term, it means that you have been, all your sins, all of your wrongdoings have been wiped clean from your record, expunged from your record. That's the word justify, and that's what it means. And it says we are justified freely by His grace. We are gone from guilty to innocent, not because of what we did, but by the grace of God. That is an amazing statement to hold on to, that the God of this universe would care about you and me enough to send Jesus and give us a new identity and justify us of all our sins. And that's why you can go a little bit further in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. We are not condemned because we have grace in Jesus Christ, because we are in Jesus Christ. But here's the question. How can God do this? How can God bring this along? Verse 25 goes on, it says, God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. My version that I have right here says the atoning sacrifice, but I actually like the ESV, and maybe you have the KJV version, but it uses the word propitiation. And the word propitiation is a little bit bigger, a little bit harder to say, actually, but it means just a little bit more, because it means There's an appeasement or a satisfaction to the things that God is requiring. That atoning sacrifice is what what Jesus was. He was the perfect sacrifice for my sins. But propitiation takes it just a little bit more. And it tells us the only way to balance those scales, the only way that the scales of divine justice can be balanced is through a sinless offering. Are you sinless? No. Am I sinless? Far from it. But Jesus Christ was and still is. And he's the one that took that step. And he's the one that did that for us. And that's how we are forgiven. 
that word forgiven is in there. What does it mean to forgive? If I asked you to forgive somebody, Jesus tells us to forgive 70 times 7. If I asked you to forgive somebody, what does that mean to you? If a family member did something and you had to forgive them, what would that look like? I want you to think about that for just a second because a lot of times I think we think forgiveness is just forgetting what somebody else did, which is half of it. But there's another half to it all, and that's the fact that when you forgive somebody, you have to take the ownership of whatever they did and you have to pay for it, whether it be mentally or physically or whatever it is. Let me give you an example. My 17-year-old son, he drives. And I'm not saying that he's done this, but we'll just say, for instance, this is an example. He's backing my car out of the garage. It is a beautiful 1997 Mercury Grand Marquis. Um, but he's backing himself out of the garage, and as he is, I mean, this, this, chair, this car is only three years away from historical status, okay? So he's backing out, and he's looking over his shoulder this way, doesn't see the mirror, and he rips off my driver's side mirror. And he comes in, and he's like, hey, Dad, I uh, might have ripped off the mirror off your car. And as a good and loving dad should do, uh, I would say something along these lines. What? And then I would get past that. And then I would say something along these lines. Hey, buddy, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. But when I say don't worry about it, we'll take care of it, is that mirror going to fix itself? No, it will not. Is there a cost involved in fixing that mirror? Absolutely. Who pays the cost? I do, because I forgave him of his debt. I forgave him of what he needed to pay. And that's what we see with Jesus. See, we have a debt that we have to pay, and that debt is death. And that's why he came down as a substitutionary offering for us. That's why this cross glows behind me. That's why that cross is over there on the wall. That's why at Easter we will talk about that cross being empty because he defeated death and he raised from the grave. And what a beautiful thing that is. And I have righteousness, not because of what I've done, because I owed something, but because he forgave me. And I accepted that forgiveness. And I've allowed that forgiveness to come into my life. And we say, well, you know what? Why can't God just forgive us? Why can't he just forgive us? And I think nobody just forgives and walks away because there is that debt to pay. Forgiveness means bearing the cost instead of making the wrongdoer do it. And that's us and Jesus. And then you jump to verse 26. It says, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. There's that word faith again, by the way. This final verse helps us to understand and see this picture bigger, the bigger plan of what's at stake here. Do you realize that this isn't ultimately about us? This is ultimately about God's glory about God showing us and saying, I am not narrow. This is what selfless, humble, and loving righteousness is all about. Because if he wanted to be narrow, he never sent Jesus, and he sent us all to hell. That's what we deserve. But instead, he loved us enough to send his son so that we could have a relationship with him, so we could have that relationship that we see really demonstrated on the cross. See, the cross is a great picture of when Jesus came, that it was the justice of God and the justification of man all at the same time. That he poured out his wrath on his son, the wrath that I had. See, if God simply forgave sin without a payment, he wouldn't be just. 
And like I said from the very beginning, we need to know God. And one of the things about God we have to understand is that He is a just God. It'd be like this. There's a judge that we vote in here in San Duval County, and they never judge a case. Or when they do, they say, no, it's all good. You, know, you can do whatever you want. Is that really a good judge? Would you feel that justice was being served? If they just walked in and did whatever they wanted and said, oh, don't even worry about it, it's all good. No, there has to be justice. And because there is justice, there is a society. Without justice, we have no society. Without justice, we have no peace. But without payment for sin, God can't be just. And so somebody had to pay it. And that is Jesus. That is why Jesus is the only way. That is why Jesus is the only solution. Because when it really breaks right down to it, we see it here. It's for His purpose to bring us closer to Him. The sinless Son of God died a death so we could have His righteousness applied to us. Jesus is the only one who can do that. My question for you today is this. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you grasp it? You know, because when we believe it, when we see it, that truth changes everything. Everything. Changes the way we see God changes the way we see ourselves, changes the way we see others. It changes everything. I mean, when you really stop and think about it, when you see with Jesus' eyes, people look different. The sins of the world aren't just people being nasty. It is the devil deceiving them. And you begin to see it in that way. You know, one of the things that was really hard was about three weeks ago, I didn't care anything about Bulgaria. Didn't care anything about Bulgaria. It wasn't something I was like, ooh, yeah, we should visit there sometime. I mean, it's on the Black Sea. They have a sunny beach. It looks fun. Never crossed my mind. But now, my eyes have been opened to Bulgaria and the things about Bulgaria and the people of Bulgaria. And I began to do research on it and study it. And Camo's telling me about how things work because he's been doing research at work. And I'm like, why aren't you working? And, and uh, um, the, the, the reality that we really have set in is when our eyes open, we see things differently. I pray that you see things differently. That God, though Jesus is the only way, it's not exclusive. It's entirely inclusive. That when we come right down to it, we need to share that. It's my original question I asked from the very beginning is, what are we doing about it? What are we as a church? What are we doing as family members? What are we doing as friends? What are we doing about this idea that God has changed us, therefore we can share that so he can change others? I had a guy ask me this week, said, so, hey, what's your church doing for the unchurched? Anybody want to answer that for me? Yeah, I couldn't answer it either. And it stung just a, well, a lot of bit, really. Because in our motto, in our vision statement, in our mission statement, it is to reach the church, the unchurched, and the de-churched with the gospel of Christ and bring them closer to Jesus. And I'm like, well, if that's our mission, F, failure. He asked me straight out, and I just said, we're not, I mean, not doing anything great. We're, we're expecting everybody to come here. We're not going out to anybody. We're, we're doing this, and, and I am the one who is first. And, 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 you know, the real question about what are we doing, why do we get together on a Sunday morning? Why do you go to church? Is it merely just to play church? 
Is it just to, to walk through the motions and check off a box and say, yep, I did my one time and once? Is that why we do this? Or we do it so we can grow closer to God, gain strength in that, and go and share our faith. See, because otherwise we're just being apathetic. Otherwise we're just kind of cruising along. And I, I don't think I can do that. I beat myself up when I realize where I'm at. And, and even this week, I said, God, somehow, some way, I don't know what it is, but I don't find you worthy. Even though we sang that song, worthy of every song we could ever sing, worthy of the name, Jesus, you are worthy. And we said it over and over and over again, but my life doesn't demonstrate that. And I am guilty, number one, as a leader in this church, of not demonstrating that properly, to show the worth of God. And I want you to pray today that, that we find God worthy to invest our lives in His mission. Our time, our money, our efforts, our energy, our gifts in His mission. I, that's my prayer, that, that we take this little flame that's in our heart that flickers around and say, yeah, I'm a believer, and light that sucker into a big old bonfire. And let the world see. Because I truly believe that if we see God so clearly, the people around us are going to go, what are you looking at? And they're going to want to know. And they're going to want to know about my God. And they're going to want to know about my Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the sin of pride gets in the way. The sin of selfishness gets in the way. The sin of arrogance gets in the way. All of our sin gets in the way. And, and I'm not sure if you've noticed, but I scooted the chairs back just a little bit today. I scooted the chairs back just a little bit today because today is a day that I think that we need to repent. Now, you might be like, oh, man, it's going old Southern Baptist today. I'm just going to tell you, I'm not one of those types like that. But I grew up hearing that word, oh, you got to repent and turn from your sin. And they had that real weird thing afterwards. And you're like, what does that even mean? And, and, but I began to look at this word repent. And, and repent actually just means we have to change our mind. We have to pray that God changes our mind, which then leads to a course of changing action, which then leads to a course of growing closer to God. Because when we change our mind about ourselves, that we aren't as good as we think we are, when we change our mind about God, that He is worthy, it will change our lives. And today's the day that I'm going to ask that if you're able, and if you're desiring it, of course, I'm not just going to force you to come down here, but man, maybe we just need to get on our knees and say, God, I'm sorry. I know you have forgiven me, but forgive me of this ultimate sin of putting myself first. Move me in that direction. And I scooted the chairs back because maybe you want to do it here at our, whatever you want to call this. I'm not going to call it an altar. But maybe it's a place where you just come before the cross and you get on your knees and you say, God, I'm sorry. I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to be the first one that does it because I need to do it. I need to get down on my knees and say, God, I'm sorry. If you want to join me, please do. If you want to join me from where you're sitting at, please do. If you want to not do it, man, that is totally up to you. I'm not one that's going to be like, better do it or else. God's already got that covered. So um, here's what we need to do. I'm going to ask Jerome to come up here so it's not weird dead air. I'm going to ask him to come up here. Just, just play. And maybe God's moving in this. And I know, I just looked up at the clock and I've been talking way too much. I know you're going to be like, well, I, lunch plans. We've got all the family here. We need to get out because furs is going to fill up if we don't. I want to challenge you. Don't worry about that just yet. Worry about your relationship with God and where you're at. Jerome, what you would, I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to just get down here. Like I said, if you want to join me, feel free. If the knees don't uh, work like they used to, do it at your chair. If you don't feel it, then don't do it either. 
Listen to God, though. Listen to what he's saying and how he's saying it. God, thank you so much for today. And thank you so much for your word. And thank you for the way that Paul laid it all out for us. To show us who you are. To show us what you are. To show us why you do what you do. And God, today, as we even think about this word, repent, to change our minds. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, we need to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And then it goes on to say, God, renew our minds so that we can focus on what your will is. Just like Jesus focused on what your will is, help us to do that very thing. God, we ask you to do it even this morning as we continue in this time of prayer, this time of us talking to you. Maybe, God, there's somebody in here who needs to completely repent, who has never accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. They didn't understand the only way thing. God, I pray today is the day they meet you. But maybe there's other people in here who have been in church for a long time and who have been just apathetically going through the motions. God, I pray you change your heart and change your mind about that. I pray you do it today because we can't do it on our own. We need you. pray in your name. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Father, as we come today, help our excuses be washed away. Help us give our lives over to you as that living sacrifice. Use us today for your glory and your honor. As we sing to you this final song, may it be a prayer of praise as well as a prayer of dedication. That not only do we dedicate these children here this morning, God, but we also dedicate our lives to you. We pray it in your name.